2: Exclusions apply. See site for details.
1: Hey folks, this is Kevin. On
2: this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Amy Brooks. I lost control of my bowels. I was trying to make it to the bathroom. The cat was following me. One thing led to another.
1: (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just wanted to say thank you so much to our latest Patreon member, Dave Gratz. We give a shout-out every time someone gives $25 or more per month. And it is so, so meaningful to us. We really very dearly rely on the financial support of our fans. If you love what we do, there is so much to find over there at Patreon. Uh, check-ins of all sorts, all kinds of bonus stories, all kinds of prizes for the various you know financial amounts that you can give. You can give... As little as a dollar a month, I mean, JC has pointed out that if everyone who listened to the show quite regularly gave just a dollar a month over at Patreon, we could radically change this show. We could do so much more. So check it out. There is a lot of wonderful reasons to go over and become a member, become more involved in the risk community over at patreon.com slash risk that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk now here's the show Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, this is Tenderlonious behind me now, we're calling this week's episode Jolts, three stories recorded in three different cities where, you know, some big surprises left the storytellers a little bewildered. My brand new kitten might make an appearance <laughs> on the podcast today. I appears to blissfully be sleeping now, <laughs> but if he does wake up, he is bound to be very, very vocal. This is day two of my little guy, Quincy, living with me. He is incredibly homesick for the foster home that he came from. He's four months old, and I think he really misses his two sisters But ever so gradually, I think he is slowly learning that I'm not so bad. (laughs) I'm not so scary. People sometimes email me to say, oh, I wanted to say hello to you after the risk show when you came to town, but I was terrified. I'm like, Jesus Christ, terrified to talk to me? (laughs) Whenever I negotiate... A kink play scene with someone, I always start off by saying, please, please, please never be afraid to tell me how you're feeling. It's amazing. And you hear it in risk stories all the time that one of the main problems we have is just this fear of straight up communicating. Oh boy, I think I woke him up. I might not be as scary as I initially seem, but I am pretty loud. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear a story that was shared at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles by Emerson Dameron. But before that, we're going to hear something that was shared at the Risk Live show in New York City recently by Paul Peglar. Such a fascinating guy. You should look Paul up at his artist collective at We Are Act. That's E-C-H-T. We are ECT.com. And here is Paul now with a story we call Q is for Questioning?
3: Amazing. So I was working at a boarding school in Switzerland, uh, it was my second summer and life was good. It was probably the first time that I felt the most fulfilled in terms of work-play balance and I was traveling and I was having new experiences and meeting new people and like life was just open to me. It was amazing. And uh, This was my second summer doing it and so I smoked pot from time to time. This was my day off, and somebody had told me that there was a guy that could get pot. And I was like, great. And they said, just go over to his house, and he'll hook you up. So I went over to his house, and this is a guy that I didn't know that well. Like, we both saw each other on campus. We'd wave at the lunch line or whatever, but I didn't know him at all. So I go over there, and we do a little exchange, and he says, well, I just rolled a joint. Do you want to smoke now? And I said, all right. So... We, you know, it's illegal. So we left his house and we went to this kind of tree wooded area. It was all these beautiful bushes. This is Lugano, Switzerland. So everything is gorgeous. And a little path kind of into this neck of the woods, pond, everything. And we start smoking the, the joint kind of tucked away. And we're just like lighting up and starting to talk. But because I don't know this guy, we'll call him Adam, we just started being like, so what's the program like for you? How are the kids? Uh, where are you from? And I should mention, this is probably two months into the program. So I had not smoked pot in at least two months at that point. When you don't smoke for a while, your tolerance goes down. That's important to this story. So so we uh, were just having a great chat. And I realized like, as I'm getting higher... I'm actually just really enjoying myself, you know, Uh, and I have the realization that I'm talking to a stranger, but it feels like a friend. And that's kind of the amazing thing about pot, right? It like brings people together. And as we're talking, I'm like, you know, I feel free. I'm like not in my head. I'm really present. Like this is incredible. So we finished the joint and he's like, let me take you to my favorite spot. So Adam's this guy, he's, I don't know where he's from, it could be California, it could be Minnesota, he's a white guy, blonde, kind of shaggy hair, like maybe he's a snowboarder in Colorado, I don't know, but like that kind of gives you an idea, he's got a friendly face. So we start walking down this path, and he takes me to this fountain with a bunch of fish. And I'm now five feet behind him, and he's already pretty engrossed, and (laughs) I suddenly start feeling very weird. My stomach starts kind of feeling churny, and my head kind of feels spinny, and I feel flush. Like, you know that experience you have if you're embarrassed or you're nervous or you're trying something new? Everything is electric, and you feel your whole body, and you're very alive. And that was happening, but it was accompanied by this feeling of disconnection because my mind was not with me anymore. And I got so kind of intense that I actually had to like hunker down. And I sat on my ankles and went to the ground. And, you know, I looked at him because like we're really high. So I thought maybe like we just smoke bad pot or something. I don't know. And he was fine. He was just like looking at the fish, clueless, you know. (laughs) But I was experiencing something and then I realized, oh. Oh. You know that feeling you get when you know you're supposed to kiss someone and I'm like I look at him and I go I'm not attracted to him I'm not attracted to men but I have this feeling and suddenly my mind was getting louder it's like that's what this is and so I'm like uh So I tried to like gather my thoughts, kind of like calm my breath down, stood up, and I look at him, and he looks at me, and then we both just look at the fountain, and he's like, fucking fish, right? And I'm like, yeah, no, that is not where I'm at. And so suddenly I'm like, what do I like? I've had this feeling before with women, certainly like you're in the moment like, oh, your friends left and now you're alone in the hot tub and this is the time. (laughs) But he didn't seem to be like, I didn't know if I was just having this moment or if we were having a moment we weren't talking about. So eventually I just go, this is something I need to address. Like I can't contain this in me anymore and I need to say something. And at that point, he had started walking back out to the street. So now I'm just following him and I'm looking at his ankles, being like, Paul, just think of like the least awkward thing you could possibly say in this moment. So I'm going and I'm like, hey, man, wouldn't it be weird if I said I wanted to kiss you right now? <laughs> And he was like, yeah? And I was like, yeah, right? And that was the end of the conversation. So we get to the street. We give a little bro hug, like, thanks for the weed stick. And he walks home. And now I'm on red alert. I'm like, oh my god, I'm gay. Like, oh, I'm coming out to myself and I just start like I got out my phone because I was like I need to talk to somebody so I started voice journaling and I was like okay you felt it Um, he didn't say anything but like that doesn't you know and so I just do that the whole way back to my house and it's my day off everyone else is working so I'm alone in my house right now and I just sit on a tree stump outside and I'm like Um, yeah mom's gonna be fine with it Um, you know she thought I was gay at one point so that's fine and then i i started getting really mad i was like how did i lie to myself like how did i almost get to 30 not knowing this about myself and i really very genuinely was mad the feeling was just anger and disbelief at once and i was alone truly just literally alone and that feeling eventually subsided into, okay, you gotta deal with this now. Your life is different, is what's happening inside of me. And so I go home, into my house, and I open my laptop. Because I gotta know.
1: <laughs>
3: so, I just look up some gay porn. <laughs> and just see if it does anything. And it doesn't, it doesn't. I get n- nothing. I tried, I mean, I went for it. Because I commit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I, I, nothing, it didn't, like, it wasn't like, yes, I get it. And so I actually ended up messaging a friend on Facebook who came out when he was 30 and I said, bro, were there signs? Like, give me some tips. Like, what did it look like for you? And eventually I realized I just had to, like, sit with this. So I said, give yourself 24 hours. Go to bed. (laughs) See how you feel in the morning. And so I did. went to bed. I woke up the next day. And I was like, oh, you were really high. (laughs) You were, like, really high. (laughs) But the feeling was real that feeling that I had was real. And what I think that feeling was is love in its truest nature. Yeah. It was human love. And it was openness and expression and receiving and sharing. It was connection. And in the end, I think that's what we all want. And I have since then and before then lived A long enough time in isolation feeling trapped inside myself and struggled with vulnerability with actual connection with others and that moment blew all that open and since then this was many years ago since then uh, I have been with men and it's fine (laughs) I definitely still prefer women I'm not like repulsed by men, but I I know that I'm open to anything and I don't know what label I am. And then when I realized that I was a part of the LGBTQ episode, as it were, it got me really thinking. And I from my limited knowledge of Q, it can mean questioning. I think until preparing for the story, I hadn't realized that that's what I was. I always was an ally, but I never felt a part of the community. And that was a huge moment to put that together and to acknowledge that that despite not knowing what my label is, I know who I am. And my first acting professor in college would always say, live in the not knowing. Trust in the questioning. And that's what I've been doing. And so when I look back at that moment, I used to think that I was lying. I thought I was in a, a state of deception. And in reality, I think it was one of the times I've been most truthful. Thank you. So I smoke pot from time to time. I had not smoked pot in at least two months. When you don't smoke for a while, your tolerance goes down. I just rolled a joint. Do you want to smoke now? Alright. I'm actually just really enjoying myself. I feel free. I'm like not in my head. I'm really present. Like this is incredible. Everything is electric and you feel your whole body we're really high. Like, this is incredible. Oh. Oh. Wouldn't it be weird if I said I wanted to kiss you right now? Fucking fish, right?
0: My name is Emerson Dameron and one of my defining characteristics is my passionate love for free parking (laughs) I will literally walk a mile for free parking if there's a free parking space within a mile of my ultimate destination my love of free parking has led me on many jaunty adventures uh, it's the reason why I have this wallet bulge in in my pants. It's bulging because of the money I save, <laughs> and it's here as a result of my peak free parking experience. Uh, I should uh, I should say that. My love of free parking is such that sometimes if I'm driving around and I have some time to kill and I see a free parking space, I will take it even if I have no reason to be in that neighborhood whatsoever. (laughs) And to celebrate my good fortune, I will get out and take a nice brisk walk around the block (laughs) to stretch my legs, and take in a new scene, and it's almost always interesting. This time uh, was a hot summer afternoon in Atlanta. I was going to school outside of Atlanta. I happened to be in the city that day. Had a couple of hours on my hands. Driving around, I see a beautiful free space (laughs) right in front of a church. So I get in, I get out, I start walking, I'm feeling good and a man who has been standing on the block approaches me and he asks me a question which is, do you have a cigarette? This is the first of five times in my life that I've quit smoking so I tell him, no, uh, I do not have a cigarette, you're out of luck today. He asks a follow-up question, which is, do you have any money? In truth, I have $3.42 in my pocket, but I don't want to give that to him. So I say, nope, not today. Still out of luck, man. He pulls out a gun and says, now do you have any money? You know, now that I think about it, I do have on my person the sum total of $3.42 in American currency, uh, which I will now happily tender to you as you will make better use of it than I would have. Safe travels, pleasure doing business with you. He's disappointed that I didn't have more money. And now he's seen the inside of my wallet, he's seen my ATM card, and he has just seen me get out of my car. So he decides that the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to drive him to the bank and take out the rest of my money and give that to him also. So we're driving up Peachtree. It's a sweltering, humid summer day in the south. And inside the car, it is awkward. (laughs) Uh, One of my other defining characteristics is that I have crippling social anxiety on a good day. this is rapidly turning into a bad day. Uh, I have shut down emotionally. Uh, I'm not in the moment. I, I don't feel like hanging out. And I imagine that his life is also not going exactly the way that maybe he had hoped in his younger days. He looks beaten by the world, by life, how whatever his age is, he looks older than that. Um, he smells like the bathroom at a condemned bus station. And he has this disorienting flat affect that I associate with severe chronic depression uh, from some experience. And he generally comes off as very stupid. Just dumb as a bag of hammers. Can't really stay focused, Uh, keeps changing the subject. Uh, There's nothing that impressive about him except the gun. Uh, This piece of shit Saturday night special with fucking scotch tape on it, uh, which is now at rest on on his right-hand side. And I'm not looking at it, but obviously I know that it's there. It is remarkable how you really can raise your status in the world and change the way that people treat you when you have that one perfect accessory. (laughs) Uh, We're not really hitting it off. Um, We don't like each other. Neither one of us really wants to be here. Uh, Nevertheless, We make small talk, because that's the rules. If you're with another person, you got to try to break the ice. And he's asking kind of basic getting to know you questions. Like, where are you from? Uh, What do you do? Who's your family? And maybe I should have given him false information just to cover my ass. But I'm not feeling creative. (laughs) So I just tell him the truth. I grew up in North Carolina. I go to school in Athens. I work for a magazine. Uh, I have a single mom who lives in Asheville. And every time his response is the same, which is, you're lying to me, man. I can see it in your eyes. You're lying to me. So there's no trust. (laughs) between us Uh, he's also convinced that I'm an undercover cop he will not believe me when I insist that I'm not which is baffling because if that's true if he's correct he's fucking up his life hard right now (laughs) Uh, he has kidnapped a cop he may end up murdering a cop and for what? for nothing for no money. This is a guy who's not good at calculating probabilities. He's in shit up to his eyebrows and he's still digging. He has not thought this through and he, is not, he can't handle the responsibility that he's taken upon himself. He's unqualified. And a part of me is worried about him. Like, under different circumstances, I would be concerned I would, I would want to have a, a talk, but we get to the bank and I take out 40 bucks, which I told him is all that I have. I actually have $82, but he takes the 40 bucks and he does not ask to see the receipt. And I think that that's it, but he has somewhere else that he needs to go. So I keep driving. And he is really bad at giving directions. Uh, At one point, we end up going four different ways around the same block, only to arrive back at the same point. And all the while, he is asking me the same questions from before. Uh, Where are you from? What do you do? Who's your family? And I, again, give him the same information because I'm really not feeling creative now. Uh, And on a hunch, this time, uh, I take off the sunglasses that I've been wearing. And this time, he looks me in the eyes uh, when I answer his questions and says, See, now the truth is coming out, man. (laughs) And I realize that this is just how it's going to be from now on. Um, I am dead, I'm in hell, which consists of chauffeuring this asshole around Atlanta from now until the end of eternity. And it will always be like this, and maybe it always has been like this. I don't know at this point. And the conversation, such as it is, keeps going. At some point, he says something that pisses me off. I don't remember the context for this, because there was no context to any of this. Uh, But he uses the phrase, you ain't done nothing for me, man. And that just pings some kind of primal rage antenna that's rooted into the darkest bowels of my psyche. And I snap. I lash out. Bullshit. I've been nothing but courteous and kind and thoughtful throughout this ordeal, which could have been over some time ago if you didn't keep fucking up. There's a lot of other shit that I could be doing today. And I'm here with you mostly because you have the gun. But I've been of nothing but service to you. I have been a class act. And all I ask, in return, is some basic courtesy and some fucking respect. You ain't done nothing for me, Matt. Fuck you! (laughs) And I breathe, and it dawns on me that I have made a catastrophically bad judgment call. And I think about um, eating ice cream by the water... As a boy uh, in Montreat in Black Mountain, North Carolina, and I wait for that test pattern because I know the next thing that's going to happen is he's going to shoot me in the eye and I'm going to be dead. He waits and he says, You know what? You're right, man. You're absolutely right. And the rest of the ride is basically fine. Uh, he's much easier to deal with Uh, we have a few awkward laughs Uh, soon enough we get where he needs to go and as he's getting out he says God bless you man (laughs) I got one piece of advice for you man keep your wallet in your front pocket not in your ass pocket because in the front pocket it is harder to steal I am amazed that he let me keep the car.
1: <laughs>
0: At any time during this three-hour episode, he could have just taken it. I'm glad that he did because I'm here and I still love free parking. Thanks. <laughs>
1: This is Risk. This is afro Celt Sound System behind me now with uh, Peter Gabriel joining in with them there. And we just heard from Emerson Dameron, who you can find on Twitter at Emerson Dameron. And before that, we heard a little interstitial by uh, Risk fan Robert Fulham. You can find more of his stuff on SoundCloud at Robert Fulham. Now, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from someone who, when she first appeared on Risk, had never told a story on stage before, but this is her third time on the show now. (laughs) Amy Brooks is an old pro now. Here she is the last time that Risk was in St. Louis with a story we call Stronger in the Broken Places.
2: hi there. We have milestone moments in our lives. Like, you guys all remember where you were at 9-11, right? And you remember where you were when the Challenger blew up. If you're super ancient, you might remember where you were when Kennedy was shot. That's up to you. But um, sometimes we have these cataclysmic events in our lives that are just like personal Challenger explosions or personal 9-11. And I had one of those... October 13th of 2016 that morning I got up that morning and my husband who was he was disabled he was a nurse who had a lot of health problems he kind of loved a good health crisis and he got up that morning and he said I just don't feel right so I said what I said every morning which was do you want to go to the hospital because that was our idea of like a date night And he said no, that he just wanted to go to my mom. So I took him to my mom's and I dropped him off. And I don't remember if I told him goodbye. I don't remember if I kissed him goodbye. I don't remember anything about the conversation because I had a thousand things to do. And I went on to work and was minding my own business. And about 11 o'clock, my phone rings at work. And it's my mom. And she has me on her cell phone and 911 on her house line. That's right. She still has landline. Mm -hmm. We're okay with that. And she is screaming at both of us, you've got to come quick, I think he's dead. And I knew instantly what she meant. I knew exactly who she was talking about. It wasn't the first time somebody told me that he was dying, but it was the first time he actually did it. And I got in my car and I drove to her house and walked in and here in my childhood living room was all the firemen, all the policemen, all the paramedics in St. Charles County and my mom and my husband who was laying on the floor. And he is clearly gone. But they're still working on him. And as I'm taking all this in, my son walks in. Because some really helpful kid texted him at school and said, There's a fire truck at your grandma's house. So he came over to see what happened. So we quickly established that there wasn't anything more they could do. And we stopped CPR. And they put a sheet over him like on TV. And um, the firemen left, and the paramedics left. And pretty soon, we were just left with this one police officer who has to stay with you until the medical examiner comes to retrieve the body. But in the middle of all this, we're making phone calls and we're telling people what's happened, and people are starting to show up. By the way, the medical examiner, they are not in as much of a hurry as you would think. And they did not show up for five and a half hours. So for five and a half hours, we all sort of ignored my husband laying on the floor. And all of these people started showing up, and all of my friends started showing up. And the thing about the whole thing that amazed me was everybody showed up with food. Now, clearly, as you can tell from looking at me, eating is my favorite coping skill, and I'm really good at it. And I had two friends that showed up, one of whom owns three Dairy Queens, and she showed up with everything on the Dairy Queen menu. Blizzards, burgers, fries, onion rings, drinks, Except she didn't get him at her own Dairy Queen. She got panic stricken and she bought it at a Dairy Queen that was closer to our house, so she paid for all of it. I had two more friends that showed up with huge pizzas and salads, and people showed up with gift cards. And if you had driven past our house that day, you would have thought we were having like a garden party on our deck. Because we were all remembering things about him and, and all the things that were special about him. And he and I were married 21 years, he was hilarious. And he was kind of the grown-up in the situation most of the time, and I <laughs> clearly was not. One of my favorite memories of him was the day we got married, all of our wedding party went to Olive Garden. And so we said to ourselves, after we were too poor for big reception with dinner, we had a cake-and-punch reception at the church. So we said to ourselves, if we go to Olive Garden, they will pay for our dinner. So we did, and they did. And they brought us a bar tab of like $125, which was interesting because none of us drank. So this kind of turned into a bit of a battle with the waitress about this bar tab because she was convinced we drank it and we were convinced that we had not. And it got loud and we left because that's how we roll. And so we come home from our honeymoon and we go through all of our gift cards and we're hungry again. We're hungry a lot. And so we decided to use an Olive Garden gift card. So we go back to Olive Garden, and this waitress says, you guys look super familiar. And I'm like, yeah, we tried to get you fired last week. <laughs> and we didn't say that. And she kept coming back to the table, and she would try to guess how she knew us. So finally, after about 20 minutes, and my husband is sweating profusely because he is terrified this is gonna, she's going to figure it out. And she comes back, and she says, I figured it out. And he literally all nearly died right then. And she says, I know you from Bob and Judy's. I don't know Bob and Judy. I've never met them. But I said the only reasonable thing that could be said, I do not remember the last time I saw Bob and Judy. (laughs) Which just led to eye rolling across the table. And uh, for three years, every time we would go to Olive Garden, we would have the same waitress. And every time, she would tell us what was up with Bob and Judy. And what she told Bob and Judy about us. So three years pass. And it's a Friday night again. And we're trying to decide what to do. And I said, well, why don't we go out to dinner? And he says, okay, what sounds good to you? And I said, well, I think pasta. And he stands up and he says, no. He says, I cannot live this lie one more minute. And we switched to pasta house because that was the only reasonable thing to do. So he and I um, had a... A really fun relationship. We were the very best of friends, and we kind of had a running 26-year conversation. And when he died, when someone dies like that, you're thrown into this fit of activity. There's all these things to do. So I threw a spectacular funeral. I kid you not. It was exactly what he would have wanted. We totally celebrated who he was. Everybody wore plaid because he told me the day he died that plaid was his favorite color. So everybody showed up in plaid, and we moved from the apartment we were in to in with my mom, and a lot of things had changed. And we were not the most mature, responsible adults. I know right now you're going, I find that hard to believe. But we weren't, and um, we had no life insurance, none. Number one, he probably was uninsurable. And number two, (laughs) we were poor. Life insurance was for rich people. So all I had was a $5,000 critical illness plan. And Chuck had had diabetes, five back surgeries, a heart attack, open heart surgery, bacterial meningitis, kidney failure that he recovered from in 24 hours. It was unheard of. And just because of the symptoms he presented, I thought he had died of a heart attack. And so that was one of the five illnesses listed on my critical illness policy. So at least we were going to have this $5,000 to kind of get going again. So you have to get the death certificate from the funeral home who gets it from, guess who? The medical examiner. And the only thing they're slower about than picking up bodies is issuing death certificates. And so we waited like eight weeks. And so eight weeks passes, and the funeral home calls me, and they said, you need to come pick this up. It's ready to go. And I was on it because I needed to turn this in for this $5,000. So I ran by the funeral home, and I go in, and the lady says, you need to look over this and make sure we've got his name spelled right, make sure his date of birth is right, all the demographic stuff. So I'm like, okay. So I open it up, and I'm looking through it, and I had one of those full-blown Looney Tune Wiley e. Coyote Acme drop the anvil over the cliff moments when I got to the bottom of the page, and it said, cause of death. And where I was expecting to see myocardial infarction, it said, accidental morphine intoxication. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't think straight. I was flooded with this rush of emotions like anger and embarrassment and shame. And and I just had this fighter flight response, and I picked flight because, let's face it, I'm not much of a fighter. So I ran out to my car. I didn't even say anything to this poor lady who thinks I'm a lunatic by now anyway. Ran out to the car, and I threw this thing in the passenger seat, and I then tried to run away from it in my own car. And I was driving down 94 at an incredible rate of speed, and all of these emotions are welling up within me, and I finally had to pull over, and I had this full-blown moment on the side of highway 94 crying screaming beating the steering wheel fair amount of cursing i just couldn't believe this it just didn't i couldn't reconcile it in my mind with who i knew him to be And, and i felt this need to protect his reputation all of a sudden i had this secret i had to keep and i didn't want my son to know about it and i just was tormented by this so i went to work and i tried to work sort of about as much as i try to work on any given day And I sat there, and I just finally couldn't be there anymore. And so I told my boss, I have to leave. Now, when your husband dies, you've got about a year's worth of latitude where you can get away with a lot. And I wasn't afraid to go down that road. So I left, and I called the medical examiner's office because they're so responsive, and I feel like they're really invested in me at this point. (laughs) And I left them a message and said, I need to talk to somebody about this report. Because now I... In addition to just the shock of it, we no longer qualify for this $5,000. And so they can't pick up bodies, they can't issue death certificates, they sure can't return a phone call. So three weeks later, this doctor returns my call. I told him who I was, I told him who my husband was, and I said, you know, I just can't reconcile this. I can't make hide nor hair of this because There was nothing about him that was suicidal, and we could account for all of his medication. That's one of the things the police officer did was count up all the the drugs, and everything was there. And he said, well, that's because he didn't take an overdose. You see, he had had multiple back surgeries. They were unsuccessful. He'd had a pain pump implanted, which is where they implant a pain pump, and then they run this little catheter over to your spinal cord, and it drops like a tiny amount of morphine into your back and that controls your pain and it had given him a great life until it got infected and then we tried two more and they got infected and at that point the only option is oral narcotics and so he had been taking morphine for 20 years and even though we were both medical professionals we just trusted that what he was doing was okay because he was getting it from a doctor we weren't outscoring dope on the streets He was getting it from a doctor, our insurance was covering it, and it never occurred to us that this was slowly building up in his body. Like if you put a frog in a pan full of room temperature water, and you turn the temperature up really slowly, that frog will let you boil him. And essentially, we had been spending the last 20 years trading his quality of life for his quantity of life, but we didn't realize it. And now I look back and I feel really stupid about that. We totally know enough that we should have known what we were doing. But without that drug, he literally could not have gotten out of bed. He could not have functioned. He would not have been able to be the parent that he was or the husband that he was. And still, he was very limited. It was not without its side effects. He couldn't think straight sometimes. He felt foggy. It made one of the side effects was depression. It made him feel really depressed. He could not poop. Narcotics don't allow you to poop. And that was a constant battle, was trying to deal with the constipation. He had suffered tremendously with all of the illnesses that he had. One of the things he got was um, C. diff, which is an infectious diarrhea. Super contagious. But it comes from taking too many antibiotics. And so he had this. He was at home. And he called me one day, and he said, you've got to come home. You've got to come home. I have crapped on the cat. (laughs) (laughs) Excuse me? And he said, I have, I lost control of my bowels. I was trying to make it to the bathroom. The cat was following me. One thing led to another. (laughs) So... I drove home, and he was a very proud man who had devoted his life as a nurse, taking care of others, and then he was a pastor for many years and took care of others, and he was covered in this diarrhea. And one of the things that he had done since we got married was anytime he couldn't sleep and he was in a lot of pain, we would sing Mama and Papa songs in the middle of the night. I don't even know why. I think I only know one. And so we're in the bathroom. I don't remember cleaning up the cat. I'm assuming that I did. He was fine, whatever happened. And we were in the shower, and he was leaning up against the shower wall, and he was crying because he was so embarrassed, and he was so sick, and he was so tired of this, and I'm showering him off with the, I started to say the garden hose, with the shower head, and he was just really at rock bottom, and I said, all the leaves are brown, and he came in with, and the sky is gray. And before long, we were both laughing hysterically. But that quality of life was not what he wanted. It was not what his dream was. And so looking back now, I can't tell you that we would make a decision that was any different. But I no longer feel the shame. I no longer feel that I need to keep his secret and that I need to protect his reputation because he had a health condition. And we treated it in a way that we weren't fully educated about. And I guess if I'm here tonight telling you this story, it's because I want everybody to know that you have to ask questions, and you have to know what your trade-off is. And My life was certainly shattered the day that I got that death certificate. But I know this. I read about this philosophy in Japan called kintsuji, and it's the art of highlighting where things are broken. So when they repair something in this philosophy, if you have a dish and you break it, In our country, we would want to piece that together and make that as seamless as possible so you can't tell it was ever broken. But in this philosophy, you line the places where it's broken with gold so that you highlight the fractures because you're stronger in the broken places. And so that's kind of what I want to do with his life and his death is I want to highlight the broken places and highlight where the fractures are because that's where our strength is. Thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. The burning heat I just think about my baby I'm so full of love I could barely eat there's nothing sweeter than my baby I'd never want once from the cherry tree cause my baby sweet as can be she'd give me two fakes just from kissing me when my
3: Around, lay me gently in the cold, darker. No grave can hold my body down. I'll crawl to her.
1: That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Hosier behind me now, and we just heard from Amy Brooks. Don't forget to follow us on social media on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at the Kevin Allison and at risk is on all the socials at risk show. We also have the risk podcast fans discussion group on Facebook and we have a crying kitten in the background. Don't forget, you can always find new information about where the next Risk Live shows are happening at risk-show.com tour. And don't forget, we teach storytelling too. And not just one-on-one sessions over Skype or in-person workshops in New York and Los Angeles and Minneapolis, but we also have video courses you can download and take in your own time. And we teach a lot of corporate workshops uh, storytelling for business we've taught workshops at Google and Pfizer and Citibank and many many more so check us out at thestorystudio.org folks today's the day take a risk
3: when my time comes
2: around lay me in the cold darker. no and hold my body down I'll crawl on to her